Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. A lot of discussion in the US on the centenary of the attack on Congress. And here in the UK at the moment, as the group of people responsible for tearing down the statue of the slave trader, Colston, and throwing, throwing it in Bristol Harbour, were found not guilty by a jury. A lot of discussion around those two events about law, about the rule of law, and how about how the rule of law is under pressure at the moment from a bunch of joker politicians who don't want there to be a rule of law, but a rule of men. Big difference, folks. And I thought it'd be good to do a podcast on law, on the rule of law. Where the heck did it come from? What is this thing that binds us, this invisible thing that binds us as tightly as chains? Why don't I just go out and ram-raid my local supermarket and steal all the food there? Hmm. Anyway, Fernando Piri is the Professor of the Anthropology of Law at the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies at the University of Oxford. That's a hell of a title. So Professor Piri came on to talk to me about the law, how humans have used the law for millennia to forge civilizations, but how the law today, really throughout the world, is largely modelled on the systems developed in Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries, and how, because of colonial rule over those 200 years, those systems laws were exported nearly everywhere on earth, and how they displaced ancient traditional systems of law in places like India, that Vasco da Gama comments on where he reached there. We go back to the beginning. Where did law begin? And we also talk about some of the parallel legal systems that we can still find in the world today. It was super interesting. So enjoy. That's the law. That's the law. You can also go to History at TV, folks. Don't forget, if you subscribe today, you get two weeks free. You just go to the link in the notes for this podcast. You just click on that with your little old thumb and you get to watch all our amazing stuff in the Antarctic. And we go exclusively and we are broadcasting from the Antarctic only history hit. That's what's happening. Podcasting and broadcasting in Antarctic starting in February as we go searching for Shackleton's ship. So uh, make sure you subscribe, get yourself all signed up, get ready for the adventure. In the meantime, folks, here's Professor Perry. Enjoy. Fernanda, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. I have been to places where there is no law and they're the worst places I've ever been. Like, you can taste it in the air, can't you? You feel an absence of law. And, and maybe that's because I've grown up in very, very delineated societies. And you feel when you're not in one of those places. Sure. And I just want to know, therefore, where you think law comes from. Because as you've looked back at the past, 
we think of law now as a very top-down uh, parliaments pass laws, which we may or may not vote for those parliaments, but we they kind of come from the top there. That's not necessarily true, though, right? Because you show that traditionally law is something agreed upon by, well, it could be agreed upon by small groups. Exactly. And it has to be said that some groups do perfectly well without law. The places you're thinking of are probably sort of the large complex societies which have organised themselves with law and the rule of law. When that breaks down, it leaves chaos. Some societies have got by with, you know, rulers being a bit autocratic, but basically keeping the peace, small communities having systems of mediation and customs. So law is something special, something that some societies have come up with as a particular way of managing their societies. And it's been good and bad. You know, there are some places where law has been very much an instrument of oppression. It's been used to manage, to discipline, to punish. You think about traditional China. Whereas other places, it's been largely a force for good. It's been a means of coordinating society. And there have been sort of careful checks and balances. So those are societies in which there's been a rule of law, where the the rule has been held to account according to objective legal standards. Now, obviously, that's generalising wildly, but you know, I think we can think of those two different sort of extremes in what law has been and done over the course of human history. Is that right? I mean, in Britain, we like to tell ourselves a story about Magna Carta and what evolves, either because of it or not because of it, depending on your historiographical view, into a place where rulers are bound by law. We tell ourselves a story about exceptionalism that's very, very, very unusual in human... Is that true? Ah, oh, exactly. That's one of the things I... I discovered when writing my recent book, which I've now called The Rule of Laws, it's essentially a history, it goes back 4,000 years. And rather to my surprise, I found that back into Mesopotamia, 2000 BC, there were sort of elements of the rule of law there. These were warlike kings, they were fighting each other, burning down their cities, carting away slaves, but they made these sets of laws, they promised justice to their people, and they tried to ensure that future rulers would be bound by law. Now, it may not have been particularly successful. It's difficult to tell now. The archaeological record is very thin. But at least there was the sense that rulers ought to be bound by law. And you found that coming up again and again in unexpected places. So in India, too, a very different example. Laws were made by the priests, the Brahmins. So they instituted the caste system, you know, terrible hierarchy. But... They also made laws that they thought the rulers themselves, the kings, ought to obey. So there was checks and balances there, priests and kings. Priests making the laws, holding the rulers to account, at least in theory. Now, these dynamics come up again and again. You know, Magna Carta is one of them, but it wasn't the first. And that's what's really interesting is the law. Maybe it's because we've been watching too many kind of US uh, westerns or something, but there's the idea that the law is something that is a tool for oppressors or it's forcing us, the people, to behave in a certain way. But of course, actually, what's so powerful about law, and I've been thinking of so much during the kind of Trump era and the various erosions of the rule of law that we've seen around the world, sadly, recently, is actually law protects us. Law can emancipate. That's the beautiful bit about law. Mm. And that's a really puzzling thing, so that you can do these things. It is a tool for managing and disciplining locking people up. You've only got to think of the Jim Crow laws in the US, you know, which basically legalise discrimination to see what bad things law can do. But at the same time, the very same legal system can promise justice and can allow ordinary people to go to the courts and complain that officials are behaving badly. 
And those dynamics have been there all right the way back in history. One thing also with our Magna Carta chat and, and the brilliance of white Anglo-Saxons inventing the rule of law is that you have obviously looked at all these other cultures over thousands of years. Is what strikes you that there is a common human... I mean, are there just a galaxy of different responses and reflections on law? Or are there weird similarities of cultures separated by oceans and ignorance from each other, and yet we have crawled towards similar ways of organising ourselves when it comes to these laws and customs? Mm, That's a very good and very complex question, because there are places in the world which just didn't invent law although they then adopted it when they were inspired by other cultures to do so. But law does seem to have arisen completely independently in China, India and Mesopotamia. China about 500 BC, Mesopotamia about 2000, and India the early centuries of the second to last millennium. And it took different forms. It was the same basic idea that people should write down laws, make them objective, objective standards that people had to hold to. And since then, laws have gone off in very different directions. You know, little communities have made laws, religious leaders have made laws. There have been laws for very bounded communities. There have been laws which have been very expansive. So they have taken lots of different forms. But it seems to be that the same three ideas keep coming back within the laws that people have invented over the ages. One is justice. You know, as we said just now, that people should be able to use laws to seek justice. One is duty, laws setting up what we ought to do with a sort of moral feeling to them. We have a moral panic in our society today and that legislators rush to pass a law. It's supposed to answer their sort of moral problems, tell us how we ought to behave. And the third element is discipline. Laws are there to punish, to control, to go back to an earlier theme. And those three themes, it seems to me, have sort of weave their way through the whole history of laws. varied though they've been, and arguably the achievement of modern legal systems as they combine all three. So you mentioned that Mesopotamia, India and China, they're a place that we also associate with the beginnings of uh, civilization, if that's the right word, of living in large complex units, largely in settled, perhaps, cities. Are laws a necessary precondition of that state? Do we need laws before we could do the science, do the politics, do the engineering and do all the rest of it? There are certain things you can only do with law, but you can do an awful lot without. And there are some big examples that Egypt is one of them. For centuries, very sophisticated, powerful civilizations. But their government, according to Egyptian scholars, was always small and their bureaucracy was, as one has put it, inefficient and ramshackle. So you can have pretty sophisticated civilization without an extensive bureaucracy and without law, by which I mean explicit written rules and recording of cases. I mean, there were judges, there was command, but there weren't laws in that sort of objective sense. And then in South America, the Maya and the Aztecs, as far as we know, no written laws. Again, sophisticated, long-lived civilizations. So laws do specific things, but they're by no means necessary for a lot of the things we call civilization. So in the absence of law, is there something called custom? Is it just our modern legal brains looking for something we think must be present? What have you identified within those societies that can fill the space that law or can create the parameters in which people can operate? Or do they just not have them? 
So all societies have some sorts of customs or norms. So I did my very first um, anthropological fieldwork up in a very small Tibetan village in the Himalayas. And even though they lived on the edge of this you know, sophisticated Tibetan civilization, which had writing and, and certain amount of laws, the villagers themselves didn't write anything down. But they did everything with custom. And there were all these unwritten rules and expectations, which were pretty, people were pretty clear about. But they never made anything explicit in written form. And equally, they had these very good systems of mediation, uh, resolving disputes according to well-accepted principles about how people ought to behave and the importance of reaching agreement. So those are the sorts of things which can bring about a type of order if there's no law. You listen to Dan Snow's history. I'm talking about the law. I am the law. More coming up. Ever wanted to know more about some of the greatest stories in history? Kings, queens, knights, monks, peasants, battles, castles, love, hate, treachery and revenge? They're all waiting in the greatest millennium in human history. Well, yet anyway. I'm Matt Lewis and my co-host Dr Kat Jarman and I are waiting to tell you some of the most exciting, exhilarating, fascinating and less well-known stories of the Middle Ages. What are you waiting for? We've gone medieval with History Hit. Are you coming? Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History Hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. You're one of so many books which is challenging our sense of our Eurocentric history and pointing out the influences of global history, not just when we might think of it, but also even when we don't think of it, the great era of European domination, 18th, 19th, early 20th centuries. Even now, we're sort of realising how much external influence was going on in that period, whether it's Chinese influence on the British bureaucracy or, or European bureaucracy, things like that. In that period where lots of our law, although we have some medieval law knocking about in the British constitution, a lot of it is that kind of early modern period. How important are these other strands of law and custom in the development of kind of European North American law? Are we learning anything as we go out and meet the Chinese, the Japanese, the Indians? I'd love to say we were, but that early modern period sort of ushered in a time of quite dramatic colonial domination. It's certainly true that, as you say, it's sort of the early modern period, back in the medieval period, the most sophisticated legal system in the world by far were found in Asia, China, that had been around already for about 2,000 years. You know, the Muslim legal systems were extremely sophisticated, as were their societies and their cultures. I would love to say that the Europeans learnt a lot from them. I don't think they did. In fact, that's one of the puzzles that in the 17th century, European laws were pretty rudimentary. They were pretty unsystematic. They had the Roman jurisprudence behind them, but there was lots of custom. They're pretty fragmented. And yet somehow the Europeans just, I suppose, when they started to industrialize, to expand, to go overseas, to found colonies in America, they just seemed to develop this great sense of their own sort of superiority. And that included a huge belief in the importance of the European laws. I suppose they look back to Rome and that great Roman legal systems at the heart of the European or behind the European laws and truly believe that by expanding their laws to the rest of the world, they were going to bring civilization to places of despotism. Okay, so to echo my earlier question, this extraordinary expansion of Europe into the rest of the world in the 18th and 19th, how does law interact with that? Was law a necessary precondition of that? Did law result from it? So the extraordinary wealth, the ships travelling around, the insurance brokers, the bankers' ledgers, we now needed like transnational transactions. Or did law precede it? Is law something that we see in the kind of late medieval or Renaissance, Northern Italy? Does that help this European explosion? There's a big debate among legal scholars about the relationship between, you know, law and in particular industrialization and whether the development of law helped that latter process or whether they went side by side. I'm not going to dip my toe into those particular waters, but they certainly went alongside each other. It was a period of you know, the strengthening of national governments very much, as well as overseas expansion and strengthening national governments, both enabled and was enabled by the consolidation, centralisation of legal systems. Looking abroad to the colonial expansion, it's not really the case that the European laws helped that project, but it was something that the colonialists felt they certainly ought to do is take their laws and set up legal systems in the place they colonised in the whole interest of civilization. 
All this talk of 200-year-old laws is making me think of how we're straying into politics slightly, but there's often a sense that for a law to be legitimate, it almost needs to be a bit cumbersome to make and unmake. Like it's sort of, you need a process. Is there a, a discourse within your field that like, if it's easy to make and then unmake and then make different laws, they lack heft. Is there a sort of sense in which the machinery to make that law should, like, because the legislative process is slow and gets gummed up. And there's a sense that we, whether it's constitutional law, of course, which is even the extreme example of this, where you need super majorities and various things and various high hoops to jump through, or they're just immutable. Is there a sense that it's, the ease of making laws is related to their legitimacy, basically? Yeah, I think so. And that's one of the reasons that so often laws are deemed to be traditional. It's still a theory of the English common law that it's always been there, that the judges are just declaring what the laws are, what the law is, rather than making new laws, even though they're constantly developing the law. And in very many legal systems around the world, you find this sense of that they're rooted in tradition. Even if everybody knows that rulers are actually making new laws all the time. And I think that sense of sort of permanence and tradition gives the law some of its authority, which then allows it to play that crucial role of holding the leaders to account. It's something external, it's something out there. And it's probably linked to that, that the lawmaking process is generally rather slow and cumbersome. I mean, classical Rome is a great example of this. You know, this is a huge triumph for the citizens. You know, they got together, they got rid of their kings, their oligarchs, they've created these citizen assemblies, and then made the 12 tables back in 450 BC. And these set out their rights. And in the whole of the Republic... The citizens gathered in these big assemblies to make new laws and to hold corrupt officials to account. And it was extremely slow and extremely cumbersome. They couldn't do it very much. But I think it was important in a way that lawmaking itself was such a big deal because then it could do the things which they wanted it to do. And it was centuries before then that Roman emperors came in and swept the whole thing away and basically took over the lawmaking themselves. Is it a challenge to law and our willingness to obey those laws? Laws are now so complicated that I have no idea how you even... Like, if the people of Rome or of Athens could gather together and be like, right, we basically need a law governing what size of the goddamn canal to use, all right? We should celebrate the increasing sophistication of our world. And yet, is that a problem for law and the way it's seen in society? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if laws are going to do anything, if we're going to be able to use them... If officials are going to be able to use them, they've got to know what they are. You do hear people in you know, civil service complaining about the laws being so complicated, it's very difficult even for them to know what they're actually supposed to be doing. I suppose law has tended to complexity. And that's something that's a little bit puzzling, but it just always has. You know, The Roman jurists got hold of the law and made it into this incredibly complex academic exercise that nobody could really understand apart from them. <laughs> And of course, there's a cynical way of looking at this. So it gives power to the experts, the people who actually understand this thing. So I'd say that laws often tend to complex, but it's not a good thing. What are some of the laws that have stuck with you? You've studied thousands of laws now, I'm sure, in the course of 10 years, if not more. What are some from anywhere in the world that have particularly stuck with you? 
Well, some of my favourites are from medieval Ireland and medieval Iceland. These small agricultural fragmented communities, whole sort of series of kings in Ireland in the 7th, 8th centuries, Iceland a little bit later forming its own republic, but a whole lot of farmers basically gathering together and making laws and having just a few experts who were, you know, in charge of these legal texts, who then took up the project and ran with it and created these long, complex sets of laws. I mean, talk about laws that nobody could ever sort of master or understand or even that were particularly useful. So among the best was laws in Ireland that told farmers how they should track down swarms of bees and when they could cross into their neighbour's fields and when they couldn't and, you know, how exactly they ought to get permission and in what way. I mean, no farmer was actually going to sit down and read the rule book before they went off and caught a swarm of bees. But some lawmaker thought this was really important to do it, probably just enjoying the intellectual challenge of it. And also at the same time in Ireland, some of the lawmakers were making pretty important laws trying to set up the king's duties. You know, here again, here's law which is supposed to guide the king, you know, to keep the king in check and make sure that the king's governed properly. But one set of laws tells the king how he should spend his week. Sunday he should drink ale. Monday he should play board games. Tuesday he should hear disputes. Wednesday he should go hunting. Thursday he should have sex. Friday he should hear more legal cases. I might have got that slightly wrong. But it's sort of ludicrous, but it was written down. I think at the very least it demonstrated that you know, law was important and the kings had to respect the law. At what stage did people start going, these laws are made by men and maybe and women, but often by man, mankind. And at what stage should we start going, no, no, there are natural laws and a legal code needs to reflect deeper laws that just bloody exist by virtue of us being human and existing alongside each other on this planet? Mm, good question. And it depends on the context. So, you know, in Mesopotamia, it was the king saying, here we are, I'm promising you justice. And it's a royal thing. And in China, it was the rulers saying, this is what we're doing to impose order. But in India, it was the Brahmins saying, ah, yes, this is all about the Dharma. These are the sort of laws of duty, which are just out there anywhere. And we're the experts because we know what it is. I think those strands have been running alongside each other all the way through. And so there wasn't anything new about that sort of development of those kind of universal laws in Europe. I mean, the Romans were sort of playing around with ideas about natural laws, but particularly as their empire expanded and they were having to make sense of the fact that they were trying to rule people with different laws and were there commonalities between them. And they developed the ideas about the common law that was common to all mankind, basically, even though they as Romans had their own sophisticated laws. Is there any lawmaking techniques that we need to bring back into the modern world today? Hmm. Now, there's a question. I don't think we should necessarily be asking our priests to make all our laws. But I'm sure some of them could do a pretty good job. Um, mm, should we all meet together in a digital forum? Yeah, yeah. Mm, dangers with too much populism, I think, when it comes to the law. I think it's checks and balances. You need expertise. You need popular buy-in. Mm. Sounds like you're a big fan of the balanced constitution of the British Parliament, so that's happy news. 
Yeah, I think the fact is that for all their commonalities, every society is a bit different. And we've got to recognise that and work out what's best for you know where we've got to now in the world. And it's good that there's variety as well. You know, we should be looking around to other contemporary societies and thinking, well, can we learn anything from them? Or can we be very aware of paths that we don't want to go down? I agree. I'm always surprised we don't just copy things more from other places in the world where things are working. Import them. Strikes me as a very clever thing to do. Um, Thank you so much, Fernanda. That was great to come on and uh, stretch my brain talking about law. I really enjoyed that. How can people read more about this? Ah, well, The Rule of Laws, (laughs) title of my new book, available in all good bookshops. Yep, uh, The Rule of Laws. Thank you very much for coming on. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favour, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.